Hello, everybody. This is Father Tom Provenzano welcoming you to another episode of the Acts Podcast. And today we're going to talk a little bit about the liturgical year and the uh, cycle of readings that we uh, get during the celebration of the Eucharist. And um, also maybe just put a you know type a few loose ends from the last episode about whether the church wants to establish a theocracy or not the answer is no uh but i have a few more you know thoughts to kind of try to tie up uh that uh, topic uh and we will get to both those things after we begin with a prayer in the name of the father the son and the holy spirit amen O god who manifest your almighty power above all by pardoning and showing mercy bestow we pray your grace abundantly upon us and make those hastening to attain your promises heirs to the treasures of heaven. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Mary, help of Christians, pray for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, yes, so we want to talk a little bit uh, about the liturgical year today. Again, the, the plan... Uh, kind of moving ahead for this uh, podcast was, you know, an episode during the week dealing with, you know, some topic of uh, concern, <laughs> something that, that relates to uh, some issue of, of uh, you know, it could be anything, culture, politics, uh, whatever happens to be going on uh, in the world at this moment, and reflecting on it from, uh, you know, the, a Catholic standpoint. And then, you know, on the weekend, the uh, maybe do one that has more to do with the liturgy and particularly the liturgy of that uh, particular weekend. Um, today we're not really going to be going over the um, readings per se, but I, I, I guess I wanted to try to give a more general sort of introduction to uh, the the lectionary, which is the book of readings, that we use during the Mass, and kind of the concept of the liturgical year. Uh, because as we kind of move along together, um, you know, the readings we hear quite often, not quite often, always have something to do with either the liturgical season that we're in, or uh, if it's a special, let's say, feast day of a saint or our, or our Blessed Mother. So the, the readings are chosen specifically to match up with uh with those realities. So, yeah, so just to talk a little bit about, very briefly, about the liturgical year. Basically, the, the Catholic Church has, has kind of divided up the year into different liturgical times or liturgical seasons. And in English, we tend to use the term season. Uh, in other languages, the term they use more is time. Uh, and in a lot of the official documents, the word time is used in the place of season but in a very common in our common way of speaking uh we tend to use the word season so i'm going to keep on using the word season because that's just what we're we're all used to so we're presently in what's called ordinary time uh and it's not ordinary time because it's ordinary or it's regular or it's mundane or it's meh no it's ordinary time because we count the weeks using ordinal numbers so it's uh, the Sunday coming up, either either tomorrow or today, depending on when I manage to get this thing uh, uploaded, uh, is the 26th Sunday of Ordinary Time. So we it's it, it's used 
uh, using ordinal numbers. Now the reason each excuse me the reason why we have green, if you notice, tomorrow the priest is going to be wearing green uh, for the liturgical ceremony, and on most days during ordinary time, green is the color. Green is meant to be a, a reflection of hope, our hope in the Lord, our our hope in everlasting life. Our our you know green sort of has that uh, uh, you know kind of connotes or denotes um, you know nature and life and vitality. You know, think of the the green leaves on the tree and the and the grass of the field. Uh, which during uh, the spring and summer are at their at their height, and uh, this gives us again hope for life eternal. And what you'll notice also during ordinary time, then the readings that we hear at mass often are is is dealing with Jesus's public ministry, and each year we're kind of following through Jesus's life following one of uh, the evangelists. Okay, so there's a three-year cycle of readings uh, that not just corresponds to ordinary time, but really corresponds to the various liturgical seasons. Uh, there's a three-year cycle of Sunday readings. It's a little different during the week. It's a two-year cycle for the weekday, for the Monday through Saturday Masses. Uh, and during the weekday, generally speaking, the gospel reading stays the same. Uh, but it's the first reading that's going to switch. So it's sort of a really a two-year cycle for that first reading. Uh, but for the Sundays, it's a three-year cycle, and all three readings change year to year for those three for those three years. So you know the, the twenty-sixth Sunday. Next year, in 2021, you're going to be hearing from Mark's Gospel. And the year after that, you'll hear from Luke's Gospel. And then, beginning again in, in 2023, we start up again with, with Matthew's Gospel and then continue that cycle. And in this, all three readings, again, all three readings change. Now, this is a, a um, really an innovation of the Second Vatican Council, or the reforms that were called for by the Second Vatican Council. Before the Council, uh, there was one book really associated with the celebration of the Eucharist, and that was the Roman Missal. And that Roman Missal contained everything. It contained not just the prayers, like that prayer I proclaimed at the beginning, you might have picked up on, is a liturgical prayer. It's actually what we call the collect for the Mass for tomorrow or for the 26th Sunday, uh, depending on when you're, when you're listening to this. Um, uh, so that, that book contained everything the priest needed uh, because there was an only a one-year cycle of readings, uh, and there were only two readings per Mass, per Sunday. Usually a reading from the New Testament, usually something out of Paul's letters, and a proclamation of a gospel reading. And it was all from Matthew. All the gospel readings were taken from Matthew. The masses during the week did not have their own readings attached to them. Basically, every mass that was celebrated then during that week just repeated the readings from Sunday. 
Okay, If it was a special feast day that merited it or that had readings assigned to it, that might change what readings you heard. But generally speaking, if it was what's called an open day or a ferial day, is the technical term where there is no, there was no particular feast assigned to it. You would essentially be celebrating the, the Sunday liturgy all through the week. Now, in a way, that continues in the sense of uh, during ordinary time, in particular, uh, during the week. If there's not a feast day or some other celebration, for the prayers, we're using the prayers from the su- preceding Sunday, but the readings though change. So what, what the council offered really for the first time was a very detailed lectionary that contained the, not only a, this three-year cycle, this new three-year cycle of readings for Sunday, but also prescribed readings for every day of the week. And then on top of that, uh, there are some feast days that have readings attached to them. Uh, there are optional you know, readings for, you know, if, 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 a, if a particular feast day is of special importance to a place, even if it's not... Let's say if it's not obligatory everywhere in the world, a particular community might want to celebrate it because it's special to them. There are readings that they can switch out. Uh, you know, there are different rules that regulate this. We're not going to get into all the details of that right now. Again, maybe over time we'll look at these things more, uh, 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 you know, in, in more detail. But, you know, the, what's most important for us right now is that, again, we have this, this, this lectionary that now opens up as uh, the council documents say in a more lavish way, the words, uh, the word of God, we hear a greater selection of the word over the three years. We're not just hearing from Matthew, but again, we're hearing from all three, or excuse me, four gospels. Now, like I said, year A is Matthew, year B is Mark, and year C is Luke. Where's John? So John gets uh, proclaimed mainly during the Easter season. And there's a few other maybe a few other times, too, where they'll throw a gospel reading from, from John in there. But for the most part, you hear John during the Easter season. And again, there's a three-year cycle that we run through of readings from John that, that we end up hearing. We don't necessarily hear the whole Bible proclaimed in the course of those three years, but it is a, it is a, a substantial portion of the Word of God that is, um, uh, that is proclaimed. And really, that's kind of the the, the key thing. You know, uh, the Bible is very important. I mean, that's kind of an understatement, <laughs> obviously. And certainly, uh, reading the Scripture personally and, and studying it and praying over it and allowing the Lord to speak to us through it is very important. Okay, I'm not uh, downplaying that. But, you know, we, we say really the privileged place for hearing and responding to the Word of God is in the liturgy, is in the liturgical assembly. Uh, if for no other reason, it's it's one of the ways in which these books entered into the canon of Scripture to begin with. The question that's often asked is, how do we decide what books end up in the Bible and what books don't? And uh, there were many criteria that went into it, but one of the criteria was, was this book used in the liturgical assembly, and not just in one place or in two places, but was it used and proclaimed in in a widespread way among the Christian community during their liturgical assemblies. And so kind of the, there's a, you know, you you can't quite separate the scripture, if you will, from 
the liturgy. Both things really belong to each other and are in a way are wedded to each other. And while certainly, again, the private reading of the Bible and praying over the Bible and you know going to your inner room, as our Lord might say, and uh, you know allowing the Lord to speak to us uh, is important, and I'm not downplaying that, uh, hearing the word proclaimed and then hearing the word explained uh, by way of the homily is a very key part of how we come to really understand what the scripture means. Um, again, I could go on and on, but I, I, I want to try to keep this as, as focused as I can. So as we, as we move through the liturgical year, what we're going to see is that the readings chosen kind of match up to the mystery that we are contemplating during that season. The, 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 calend- the, the liturgical seasons are there. Ooh, that's Route 1 right outside my window. So if you hear a, a car or a siren once in a while, you'll, that's, that's what it is. And yes, the windows are closed, by the way, ladies and gentlemen. Um, the liturgical year is a way of helping us enter more deeply into the mystery of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Okay. And then each liturgical time or liturgical season accents a particular aspect of that mystery. So again, ordinary time, we focus in a more general way on our Lord's earthly mission and his preaching and the works that he performed. Advent, we normally think of it as a preparation for Christmas, but really it's in a more intense way, meant to be a preparation for our Lord's second coming. Okay, Advent means arrival or coming or something coming into being. And what we are waiting for is not you know, December 25th as our Lord's birthday so much as we are praying for the Lord's return and that we be prepared for his return at the end of time. Christmas is a time when we are really called to to again meditate more uh, intensely on the incarnation what the incarnation of our lord means and really what it means for us again not just as an historical event but in our living out today what are the implications of you know god taking flesh the word taking flesh and living among us what's the implication for us now living in the world lent is a time of it was a time in the early church specifically of preparation for those who were going to receive baptism and of kind of entering into the desert with the Lord in order to be purified so that then we could enter into that Paschal mystery in a direct way through the sacraments at Easter. So again, while Lent is a, again, we think of it as a time of preparation, maybe preparation for our, for Easter, uh, it's really a time for us whether we have been baptized already as children or whether we are preparing ourselves to be baptized. It's a time in a way either to renew that baptismal commitment, to prepare ourselves to renew that baptismal commitment, or to receive and make that baptismal commitment for the first time. The Triduum, we don't normally think of the Triduum as a separate time, but it is. It's not Lent, uh, nor is it Easter yet. Uh, it's really it's its own distinct three days where, again, in a very particular way, we are remembering and in a way through ritual experiencing the Paschal mystery. Uh, but again, it, it's to remember what happened in the past, 
uh, but it's also to renew how we live now in Christ, and in a way to renew within ourselves, uh, to renew in our in ourselves uh, the um, commitment that we made. Uh, Easter, again, we are we are really again. Uh, contemplating the, the resurrection of our of our Lord we are continuing uh, sort of that journey after Easter and preparing ourselves for the coming of the Holy Spirit again not in a literal way the Holy Spirit's already here but we contemplate things associated with the meaning of baptism and the presence of the Holy Spirit here in the world as well as just extending that that Easter joy, that celebration of our Lord's resurrection through uh, time, and then we start up with ordinary time, which again is that sort of uh, more general meditating on on the life of Christ and and his earthly ministry, and again what it means to us. So the readings for all those liturgical times are going to somehow uh, line up. And accentuate those themes that were were uh, uh, that were called to kind of meditate on more intensely, and those mysteries were called to enter into. Um, if you will, if you notice, you will notice, I am sure, as the readings go on between now and uh, the end of the liturgical year. Now, the, the end of the liturgical year. Uh, is in November, toward the end of November. November 29th is the first Sunday of Advent. Okay, and the week before is Christ the King, which is the last Sunday in ordinary time. As we move closer to Advent, and especially in the few weeks before Advent begins, we're going to uh, have the, uh, the readings focus us more on the end times, as we come to the end of the liturgical year, we contemplate more the end times and uh, the final things, shall we say, the three last or the, you know, the three last things, you know, heaven, hell, and purgatory. Okay, and what and what those things uh, mean, and what the implications of our Lord's second coming is going to mean. So that's sort of a bridge theme because that that's sort of there in those last few weeks. Of ordinary time, and they're actually continued during Advent, during the first few weeks of Advent, uh, as well. So that—that's what I would be looking out for as we move closer. Now, I'm not going to go into detail into the readings for this week, but we're in uh, again the, the year A. We're still in year A. The first reading is going to come from Ezekiel. Chapter 18, the psalm response is uh, going to be taken from the 25th psalm. Then in that second reading, that uh, that reading from uh, St. Paul, it's from the Philippians, 2, 1 to 11. And uh, then we hear Matthew 21, 28 to 32. Now I'm just going to kind of focus in on, on two things. The reading from Philippians. Now there's an option for a shorter uh, version or there's an option for the longer full version. I hope and pray that they, they read the full version. Uh, I'm not a big fan of uh, 
the shorter options um, because oftentimes what gets cut out to me are the most you know the, the real meat of the reading what can be the sometimes I think the most important parts of the reading they kind of leave in you know maybe the introduction but they kind of knock out the punchline in a in a way and I understand there are reasons sometimes for why it is necessary especially if it's a mass for children or I've been involved with special you know mass for children with special needs and so obviously you're not trying to speed the mass through but you are trying to you know, accommodate somewhat the mass to the to the attention spans of the of the uh, of the of the either young people that are there, or in in another case, special needs people that are that are participating. But what's what's key about the Philippians is that that, that part that's going to get that might get cut out is really the great hymn, if you will, that Saint Paul is quoting, and I'm going to pull it up right now. I guess I will read it for you yes the uh, so he starts out brothers and sisters if there's any encouragement in Christ any solace in love any participation in the spirit any compassion and mercy complete my joy by being of the same mind with the same love united in heart thinking one thing do not out of selfishness or out of vainglory rather humbly regard others as more important than yourselves each looking out not for his own interest, but for, but also for those of others, having you the same attitude uh, that is also in Christ Jesus. Now, it, it, the short version ends there, and that's not a bad lesson to to learn to you know be considerate of one another, to actually uh, you know think of your brothers ahead of you know, the needs of your brothers ahead of thinking of of yourself. But what what gets cut out though? Uh, is these is what is really a great hymn that uh, Saint Paul, or what Scripture scholars believe, is a hymn that that an early Christian hymn that that Paul is uh, kind of using to remind the Philippians of who Christ really is. Okay, having in you the same attitude also uh, that is in Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, coming in human likeness, and found human in appearance, but humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Because of this, God highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name which is above every other name, that at the, end, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend, of those in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and every tongue profess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this is a great Christological hymn, to use a nice $5 word, a hymn that, that refers to Christ, and that is essentially saying that, guess what, folks? Jesus Christ is, is divine. Jesus was and is divine, and he humbled himself to take flesh and to live among us in the appearance of an ordinary human being. And even though we say Christ Jesus was uh, did have a human nature, he shared in our humanity in all ways. He, though, is a divine person. Okay, He is a divine person. And if the divinity himself 
can humble himself, can make himself small, and in fact even endure suffering and death for our benefit, you know, we should be able to kind of humble ourselves for one another. You know, we're and you know, we don't have to quite humble ourselves quite as much <laughs> as as Jesus did uh, in order to accomplish uh, that goal. So I, you know, again, I hope and pray that they actually proclaim the entire reading and not just the first part. Now, and just when we're looking at the gospel reading from Matthew, uh, what I really just want to point you to is that um, this follows. If you remember last week, the Jesus was giving us the parable of the vineyard and the workers and those who came later who got paid the same as the workers who were there all day and how, you know, the grumbling and, you know, in order to kind of uh, tell us that, you know, whether we have been following Christ for a long time or have only been following Christ uh, for a short time, uh, that, uh, you know, that is not how God looks at who the greatest and who the, the smallest is in the kingdom. Uh that when you're in the when you're in the community of Christ, you're in the community of Christ. When you've been baptized into His body and and gone out into His vineyard uh, in order to to do His work, whether you've uh, just been out there a short time or or been out there for your whole life, whether you were a, you're a cradle Catholic uh, or whether you're someone who who came into the fold later on in life, uh, there is no advantage for one or the other. Each is going to receive uh, the same kind of uh, uh, recompense uh, from our Lord when that time comes. This reading kind of piggybacks on it a little bit. Uh, in, in this case, Jesus uh, is uh, talking about two sons. One is, again, uh, given the order to go by his father into the vineyard to work. He says yes initially, but doesn't go. And the other uh, is told to go. He says, no, I will not. But eventually he thinks the better of it and goes out. And Jesus is saying, well, who, who really did the Father's will? Okay, is, is it the one who just spoke with his mouth but didn't follow through? Or is it the one who was reluctant at first but then finally accepted? Now, if we're going to really interpret the scripture, we always have to understand context, context, context. Context is very important. And what we need to understand here is that Jesus, at this point, is in Jerusalem. Okay, Last week, when Jesus was offering that parable, he was still on the road. Okay, And he was at a, a point where he was explaining to his uh, apostles and disciples the nature of the kingdom of God, and he was offering these parables, uh, talking about what the nature of the kingdom of God was like. Here, he is in Jerusalem already. He has already uh, it's already Holy Week, essentially. And now he is entering into controversies with the scribes and Pharisees. And basically, these words are being uh, directed toward what you know, the chief priests and the elders of the people as the beginning of the, the uh, passage uh, describes it. Uh, because he's going, you know, he's going head to head now. He has had his triumphant entry, and uh, the scribes and Pharisees and all the, the the leaders have seen this, and they're beginning to get a little nervous. He's actually uh, already cleansed the temple uh, as 
as well. And uh, so, yeah. Uh, and, you know, people are beginning to wonder what, what's going on here. Who is this man? And why, you know, what gives him this authority to do this? And so he's kind of, yeah, so th this reading is being given in the context of conflict and of already having entered into Jerusalem. Now, you might be asking yourself, why did we skip? Why is it that, you know, why didn't we hear about the, why haven't we had these inter intervening uh, passages? Well, the reason is, is that, again, the liturgy. We hear the reading of the entry in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Okay, and we hear the you know the cleansing of the temple at another you know another point. I don't remember which which time exactly, which Sunday exactly we we hear that reading. But in a way, we've heard those readings already if we've been following through uh, going to to mass. And I know that this is an unusual year, so most of us have not been able to. But if we've been able to follow at least the live streams going through, we know that we've heard those readings already. So the liturgy is not going to repeat them. So they're going to kind of skip that part in a way because we've already heard it in the context of the Lenten season uh, and, and, yeah, in the context of the, of, of the Lenten season. So I'm going to kind of end that here. I didn't talk much about uh, the calendar of saints. I'll go into that on a, on a different, uh, at another time. Uh, but just yeah, I'll leave that. I'll leave that here for now. So three-year cycle, we're in, we're still in A right now. We're going to hear from Matthew, and context, context, context. I'm going to go into maybe more into the importance of context in reading the scripture uh, on a later podcast. Now I'm I'm already at the half hour mark here, and I've tried to you know made a make a promise to myself that I'm going to end at a half an hour. But uh, obviously I've gotten here, and I haven't even gotten to the second. A really topic I wanted to cover, and I really do still want to cover it. So, if you will indulge me for a a, a few minutes more, you know, last time out, I uh, shared with you my thoughts on what really the Catholic view on government is, and what our view on the relationship between church and state. Uh, that uh, it's not the Catholic view that uh, a theocracy or a, a government run by the religious institution or by religious people, for instance, that you know the president should be a cardinal or that you know the pope should be the emperor or something like that. That's not a part of really a part of our thinking, and that's really rooted in Scripture. Where if you look at the Old Testament, it, it, God really leaves up to the Israelites how they organize uh, Israel, how they organize the government, and, and if you look at um, you know Peter and Paul and what they're advising the early Christians. It's not, you know, a matter of infiltrating and taking over the government, but it's a matter of being good citizens. And certainly, we are trying to establish the kingdom of God, but not as an earthly kingdom, a political kingdom as we might understand it, but that people's hearts and minds are changed, and that society, while not uh, being, you know, ruled by uh, a religious institution or by the institutional church is nonetheless influenced in its laws and uh, in its policies by the guiding principles of the gospel. And as I as I tried to point out too, you know, our view of law uh, is is that the, the the human law is there 
uh, to help preserve what's called the common good. And while, again, laws need to be uh, in accordance they, they, with the divine law and with, with uh, we would even say, the eternal law that emanates directly from God and expressed through natural law and the, the divine law, uh, you know, just because a certain action is sinful, just because uh, a certain uh, habit is in reality a vice, doesn't necessarily mean that there needs to be a human law against it. That, that one has to weigh if the action, if the sin, if the vice, has a clear detrimental effect on the common good. And if that's the case, then you know, government needs to intervene and, and make a law to uh, prohibit that particular thing or to control that particular uh, action or vice. Uh, but that uh, you know, just because something might be detrimental to my soul does not necessarily mean that the government has to act upon it. It, it all has to be in accordance with, with right reason and with uh, what is ultimately going to be best for the common good. Because what sometimes happens if we go on these crusades uh, to make uh, sin or vice a crime uh, we end up not rooting out the vice and actually uh, creating uh, greater social disruption and it ends up being detrimental to the common good. So all these things need to be balanced out. The, the, the bottom line is is that, at least when you're looking at what, how I understand the Catholic inter intellectual tradition, uh, it, you know, it's not calling us to you know, have the, the, you know, the Bible necessarily in one hand and the Constitution in the other. But just to have within us a well-formed conscience uh, to really live the gospel with our lives, have it affect us and form us, and you know that is going to to regulate how we function as citizens and how we perform our duties as a faithful citizen. It's not necessarily to enact, you know, Catholic doctrine into law. Okay, uh, it's a it's a law of the church. It's a precept of our religion. For instance, that you need to go to mass every Sunday. That that part of that first commandment of of honoring and and you know loving God and putting God first means worshiping Him on. On Sundays, but we don't make that a law uh, in the in the civil sense, you know, punishable by you know imprisonment or fine. It's been tried in certain places, and you know, I'm not saying I'm not saying there aren't Christians who never tried doing something like that. Uh, the the first the first uh, the the Puritan colonies here were among those who, who tried to impose those kind of. Uh, those kind of laws that that made Sunday attendance mandatory for for the public, uh, but we would say that that's not necessarily good policy. You know, that's not necessarily good policy, and that that's not necessarily a good thing to do. So anyway, the point I really wanted to try to drive home today, you know, piggybacking on what I talked about the last time, is that of course. Uh, a, a, a Christian or Catholic politician, is, if they're really integrated 
as a human being, if their faith is truly integrated into their life, of course their faith is going to influence how they do their job. Okay. And, and that should go really for anybody. Now, I mean, if you're an accountant, you know, one could ask the question, well, how is one a Catholic accountant? You know, do, is there a different accounting method for Catholics than there are for, uh, for other people or for, for secular people? Well, of course not. You know, there's you know, accounting. Uh, the way a, a Christian is going to approach a, a ledger is going to be the same way that a that an atheist approaches the ledger, okay? But the our Christian faith, our Catholic faith, is maybe going to call us to a higher level of honesty and integrity in how we deal with people, in how you know we 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 work the ledger. How we, you know, we don't steal, we don't embezzle, we don't cheat, we don't, we don't play games with the, uh, with the, with the, with the sheet, with the, with the, with the, with the ledgers that we're dealing with, with the profit and loss sheets. Now, that's not saying that that an atheist does, doesn't or can't uh, have those high standards as well. I mean, of course they they can, but I, I'm just saying I'm just saying that that's how one lives out your, for instance, you know, your Catholic faith in a practical way as an accountant. And, you know, when, when you look at a, a, a member of uh, the Senate or the Congress or a president or a member of, of the Supreme Court or if it's the dog catcher, <laughs> I don't know if we really elect dog catchers. I don't know why that, yeah, maybe it's an elected office. That'd be an interesting thing to look up why we always talk about people getting elected dog catchers. But I digress. The, the my You know, my point being is that, you know, to be a good Catholic and a a, mem a a a public servant like that in in either politics or on the court, uh, it's not that we're trying to enact specifically quote unquote Catholic laws, or we're trying to codify uh, somehow the New Testament in, into law. Uh, but what we're doing is applying those principles those Christian principles of loving God and loving neighbor and a, a philosophical tradition that to a certain extent calls us to a certain level of objectivity and understanding our limits, personal limits, and what the limits of our job is. And applying those you know, limits and respecting the fact that, for instance, there are human laws and your job as a legislator or as a judge is either to enact human laws or to judge the constitutionality of those laws. And for a judge, the Constitution is the measure, okay? Not the New Testament. Um... What our hope is, and what our goal is, is that whatever laws that are either in the civil code or the way that the Constitution has organized and mandated the running of the government are based on principles that are in, in accord with right reason, are not contrary to the law of God, as, as expressed through natural law 
and the the law of uh, excuse me the, the the divine law. It doesn't necessarily mean that again that we're imposing uh, the Bible, where we're we're taking you know uh, scripture passages from you know the Torah and and enshrining them uh, in civil law. That's not what it means, but it means recognizing limits recognizing our limits as human beings, that there is a reality bigger than us that we are responsible to and uh, that we are accountable to and that there are values that are bigger than us. And we are limited in what we can do by, yes, even the human laws that have been passed, and it's not for a judge to. It's a judge. It's the judge's job in the case of a Supreme Court justice to judge the law, but it's to judge the law based on the Constitution, not to base the law judged on his or her personal whim. Uh, that this is a controversial thing to say. In past ages, it wouldn't be. Today, it is. We live in an age that is dominated by secularism and by what's called subjectivism. Okay, that we are that everything is relative. That there is no external truth outside of myself. That I am the one who defines right and wrong. And that there is no external uh, judge and no external standard by which uh, I need to uh, conform to. I don't know that most of us understand really how dangerous this is and how a society that really bases itself on this idea is really not long for existence. And I, and I don't, I'm not trying to be overly dramatic, but it's the truth. If we make reality, if we make the truth so subjective that it is entirely based on strictly my own whims, then I don't know how we live together in civil society. And if everything gets reduced to the exercise of our wills, that he or she with the strongest will is the one that wins, uh, then there is no reason anymore. Never mind faith, hope, and charity, but reason gets thrown out of the window as well because it's our will above everything else. And that is dangerous. That is dangerous for us as a society, and it's dangerous for us as individuals. And so when I said at the end of, of the last uh, podcast that, you know, I would rather have someone influenced by Thomas Aquinas on the court than I would influenced by Friedrich Nietzsche, well, that's exactly <laughs> what I meant. Okay, I am not. I am not presenting myself as a as an expert on on Nietzsche or on his philosophy. But I, 
but I, I do know that he very much believed that, yes, we had come to a point in history where God was dead. He proclaimed, famously proclaimed the death of God. He wasn't so much, even though he was an atheist, he wasn't so much uh, speaking of God as being alive or dead in a literal way, but he was talking about the influence that God and that Christianity had on society. That even in the 18th century, uh, it was waning. And that, that, that any appeal to an outside authority, to an outside moral authority, to an objective moral authority, was, was now passe. It was now for each of us to create the new reality to create the new reality uh, based on our own will to power. Now, sometimes Nietzsche gets kind of knocked as a proto-Nazi. I don't think he was. <laughs> there are some actually, on the other hand, who say that he was sort of a proto-hippie, if you read some of his, of his other writings, because some of his writings seem to have that kind of Dionysian, um, uh, you know, never-never-land quality to it. But some of that, that aspect of the and I and I do think that yeah the the accusation that he was a, a proto Nazi might be a little too much, uh, but certainly he saw and he understood what the death of God meant and what the the creation of a new order based on on a totally subjective reality was going to mean. He sort of understood that the twentieth century was going to be a very destructive century that you don't tear down the old to build up the new without, uh, without casualties, without literally human lives being lost, never mind you know, destruction of, of property, certainly, uh, but that this was not going to be a pretty thing. This was actually going to be pretty ugly. But that, obviously, the hope was that in the end, a new creation, a new world would be built. But built on what? If everything is subjective, if everything boils down only to what I want in this moment, and there is absolutely no regard for objective truth, for some standard outside of ourself, I don't know how we can go on and live, I think, as I said, in, in civil society. I think eventually it breaks down. And in, in this particular case of... of the Supreme Court, if the basically the Constitution is put aside and laws are judged as constitutional or unconstitutional, essentially uh, based on what our wants or desires are as individuals, our political goals, again, I don't see things standing for very long. And I think that we, we, what we don't understand is that this will to power this, this subjective drive to mold reality based on personal uh, desire or will, uh, you know, we're happy with it when it's our people who are in power. But what happens when power shifts? What happens when power changes? Then maybe we don't like it so much. And what happens when true tyranny 
takes over. You know, that's 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 the gateway to tyranny is to basically say that no one is accountable to anything outside themselves, that there is no higher law, that there is no higher good, and that everything is strictly based on my will, and my will is here to exercise my personal desires. That's the gateway to tyranny. That is the gateway to dictatorship. So we, we really need to think very long and hard. We seek to build the kingdom of God. This is absolutely true. But there's a way to do it. It's done with love. It's done with patience. It's done known that everything is done in God's time, not in ours. And it is not a kingdom that seeks to destroy and to dominate, but it's a kingdom which seeks to lovingly embrace all the world. It is a kingdom that understands that sometimes the weeds and the wheat grow together, as the parable says. And we have to be careful about pulling up the weeds, because sometimes those roots are intertwined with those of the good wheat, and you end up destroying both. It's not a kingdom based strictly on subjective desire and the will to power. And believe me, there are many in government, there are many in the courts that are guided by that philosophy, whether they know it or not. And many of us are influenced by it, whether we know it or not. We need to, in a very purposeful way, in a very clear way, embrace Christ. Let him form us. Let him form our conscience. Let him open our eyes to the truth. The truth of his love and of his mercy and of his saving plan for each of us. And for the vocation that he has for each of us, for the meaning which he wishes to give each of us in our lives that is rooted in him and ultimately rooted in the Trinity, conceived in the mind of God from all eternity and now delivered to us and given to us who have accepted his grace, been incorporated into the church through the sacraments, who have been given a mission, have been given a name, have been given a vocation. I'm going to end it there, because I know I have been rambling. <laughs> but again, I thank you for listening. I thank you for your patience. Uh, know that uh, I pray for all of you. Please pray for me. I'll be back during the week with uh, another episode. And... Um, God bless all of you, and know always that Christ loves you very much. Good night, good day, whenever you're listening to this. God bless and goodbye.